Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. You you were saying you were looking at my your LinkedIn profile and you noticed I was a Canuck, eh? Yeah, yeah. So I had the great pleasure of spending six months in the winter in the Calgary. Okay, <laughs> nice. Like right in the dead heart of winter? Or yeah, what? October to March. I think the first day I got there, it snowed. And, and mid-March for the day I left, it snowed. So No way. <laughs> yeah. Did you take advantage of getting into the mountains? Or I what? did. You know, I, I actually bought a snowboard and taught myself how to ride. Oh, no way. Yeah. Where so at? I, so I, would, I, I went out to Banff to Lake Louise. Nice. Yeah, that was probably one of my favorite spots. And then Sunshine was pretty cool too. Okay. It's beautiful up there. Yeah. Anyone who ever goes to Calgary always ends up heading west into the mountains. And so I'm glad you took advantage because funny, a lot of people go up there and they're all excited and they're going to travel west. And then they end up going up there and they're so dialed into work, they don't get the opportunity. And it's like, it's like an hour and a half away. Yeah, it's in the backyard right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you ever been to Denver? You know, I've spent some time there, and I prefer the Canadian Rockies, to be honest. It's mm. not as crowded, and it's a little bit steeper, I feel like. Okay. But yeah, no, I, I picked up snowboarding while I was up there. And Dude, that's so yeah, awesome. It, took, it was probably three separate days of me falling down before I finally picked it up, and then I just had a blast after that. So no real injuries, obviously. You're here with both legs, and you're not in, on crutches or in a wheelchair. So you obviously, success, you know, it was a success teaching yourself to snowboard. But yeah, now I've, you know, I, I probably consider myself intermediate level, and I'm looking to go. It's been probably five seasons since okay. I've been last. So nice, yeah. dude. That is so cool. Anyone who can teach themselves how to either like snow ski or snowboard, wakeboard, skateboard. I got to give it up to you, man. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. You mentioned skateboard. I actually, <laughs> I found a skateboard just the other day, like walking. So I live near some railroad tracks and I was walking down there and I, there was like an abandoned skateboard, perfectly good, you know? And so I just, I recently started picking up skateboarding again. Too. No way. <laughs> some poor kids looking for a skateboard and there you are ripping around trying to, you all know, right. ollie over little pine cones and stuff. I'm waiting for someone to say, hey, that's my board. I'll gladly give it back to him, but it wasn't getting any use out of it. So. Okay. Well, if anyone out there is missing a skateboard, hit up old John here. He'll be happy to maybe give it back to you if you can provide some proof that it's yours. <laughs> so how's the rest of your week been other than skateboarding and uh, just tearing it up yeah man it's it's been good you know this is an interesting year in the industry 2019 Mm. and you know i I, it's kind of over my career i've taken an interest in and kind of being an entrepreneur and and since 2016 i kind of started consulting through a firm called kittitut okay it's difficult to spell and pronounce but i was actually going to ask for that because i couldn't i was typing it out and i was like kittitut kittitut so how do you say it again it's kittitut Kittitut. It's a, yeah, it's actually a native Inuit word for dancing bear. Wow. And so it's that's a, your new nickname. Yeah. Old John Dancing Bear. Okay, yeah, I like yeah, that. Perfect. Yeah. So you know what Kittitut does is is we we help oil field service providers understand kind of their customer needs and, and as far as oil and gas technologies. And so having been a customer of a lot of cutting edge technologies, you know, over the years that have really helped advance our industry, yeah. that's been one capacity where I've kind of branched out from the typical engineering role that has really, you know, excited me and kind of opened doors for me, at least to think outside of the box. Good for you. So let's back up a little bit. You, you've obviously been in the industry for a while and, and similar to what you did on me is I looked up your LinkedIn. It's typically what I do. And 
I mean, you started off in here in Houston, right? And with, I think that was with Anadarko as a reservoir engineer. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about your journey and even how you got in the oil field. Yeah. So, you know, growing up here in Houston, I uh, actually thought everyone's dad was a petroleum engineer. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair assumption. <laughs> so my dad is one as well. And so I followed suit in the same career path as, as he did. It also went to the same university. So I went to University of Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner. Okay, there you uh, go. I'm a third generation Sooner. My parents say I'm an Okie born in Texas. So, <laughs> nice. So, you know, I, I found a passion in, in oil and gas and, and was fortunate in 2008 to apply for an SPE Gulf Coast Section Scholarship. Good for you. And then actually with the scholarship came an internship. And so I, so I kind of got my foot in the door in industry pre-college. And so that was really the first opportunity I had when I was at Anadarko. And then I did three summers with ConocoPhillips through their internship program. Nice. And got to travel a little bit and then hired on with ConocoPhillips out of school went through kind of a completion skills development training rotation and then, you know, really found a passion in, in, in fracking and, and shale field development. And, you know, pretty much since then, my career has been focused on optimizing completions and, and innovating. And, you know, you've kind of see, witnessed the industry continual, continually evolve and, and yeah. you know, be able to make oil and gas production economic at lower market pricing. Right. And that's extremely important, especially right now with commodity prices. Now we're somewhat stable, but it was interesting, obviously, through the last downturn, companies really had to get efficient and, and adopt technology and spend money on it in order to you know, be get, become more efficient, reduce headcount, and be in a position to make money at those lower commodities. So it's more important than ever, I feel like. So you you get you got you did school. You obviously speaking. You're so you're sooner. Do you? This is kind of off topic, but do you have a flag in your yard? Because I think like everyone that I talk to or even know that's a Sooners fan has an OU flag in their yard. Yeah, you know, we have one. My wife needs to put it out. Yeah, okay. but, well, yeah we do have one. Yeah. <laughs> so if John's wife's listening, please put it out. You can tell he's shaking at the knees here. He just wants to get his flag out on the yard so yeah. he can fly the Sooners. That's so funny. So when you were with Conoco, what area were you looking after? You, you mentioned shale. Was it, a, it was obviously a shale play or that you were primarily working in? Yeah, so... Throughout the training I did, I was it was all focused in completions, and you know the first four to six months of the training assignment was just sitting in a classroom, trained by subject matter experts on hydraulic fracturing theory, completion design, and other things. And then I did two six month assignments, and one of those was in Calgary, right? And that's where I actually worked on some frac modeling. Oh wow, which is pretty interesting. And so that you know that is one component of you know the industry that you know mo- you know reservoir simulations and, and modeling and and then i've also you know the, the the second assignment was was more execution in the box okay nice nice so when you're in calgary and i just want to touch on that too is so you were working downtown obviously yeah yeah i actually yeah. lived in eau claire oh nice right on the bow river eau claire is yeah. beautiful did you i'm assuming you didn't float the bow river during the winter time no it no. was pretty icy yeah. <laughs> yeah you could probably skate it on yeah. ice skates yeah nice did you take advantage of any of the sports like all the calgary flames did you watch any flames games? i did actually i okay. went to my first nhl game at the stampede center yeah yeah what'd you think it was cool man it yeah. was really cool you know it, i was impressed with how many fans actually put on the jersey yeah everyone had hockey jerseys on there you know i even bought one <laughs> yeah so. you did nice. <laughs> i like how you totally embraced the culture you buy a snowboard you buy the jersey yeah. you're you can almost say you're you're half canadian well that season was actually the nhl lockout if you were oh, 20, 30, 20 to 12 13 yeah that's right and so 
I, I witnessed the depression that the whole country went through when there was no hockey. And, <laughs> yeah. then, and then the excitement as, you know, it was midseason when they, you know, announced that the league was back on. And that was yeah. pretty fun. Dude, that is so funny. That would be like, you know, most of the listeners out there, I'm sure, are into football. That'd be like football going on strike. And it would just be devastating, especially for the months out of the year that everyone just focuses on, you know, Thursday nights and Sundays. And then obviously for college. But or heck, even if imagine if college football took a strike and was like, no, we're not doing it. Like how many people would be extremely disappointed? I'm trying to figure out what to watch now that football's over. (laughs) That's always a running joke. You see memes. It's like once football season's over, it's like, you know, what are we going to do now? on Sundays and it's like these people that are just like you know look like they're half dead because they're so bored (laughs) that's funny so but before I went to an NFL game I actually did go to CFL game oh you did nice yeah so I saw the the stamps play the Rough Riders okay so if anyone watches Canadian football which not many do there's a a big rivalry between you know the Calgary Stampeders football team and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders oh yeah and and so I compared it you know Having a Texas-Oklahoma relationship, I, I always say like Alberta is like the Texas of Canada and Saskatchewan's like the Oklahoma. That's a really good analogy, actually. I can I can relate to that. I mean, growing up in Calgary and then, you know, working in the oil field, too, both are, you know, they really depend on oil and gas and energy for the, for the economy. But there is a rivalry. And it's funny, even the rig hands, too, if I worked for Precision Drilling and, you know, you'd have your, you'd have your, you'd have your BC boys, which they all laughed at because they were thinking they're just a bunch of lazy stoners. Then you had your Albertans that were like, yeah, we run the show. But then your Saskatchewan farm boys, they're probably the hardest working sons of guns and, you know, that I've ever worked with. But there's always that, you know, that rivalry, but it's friendly. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see that with, you know, Oklahoma Tech. Texas too. Yeah, so it's yeah. instead of just east to west, you're north and south, and but the same culture nonetheless, mm-hmm. almost. So what? So you went, you were at Conoco, and then you did you travel overseas, or was that? Did I read that, or was that? No, no. For work, the Canada was the only you know expat assignment that I had, which was gotcha. probably one of the you know best places you can go. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun, and you know Canada has always been an innovator in technology, and especially in oil and gas. And so, you know, it's been, it was a good experience to kind of see things from that perspective. And, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, sliding sleeve technologies and other things like cold tubing pinpoint fracturing, like NCS multi-stage, CalFrac, Step Energy Services. There's a handful of of extreme cold tubing, which got bought by Schlumberger. That's right. Um, All have, you know, really cutting edge technologies that have been widely adopted here in the U.S. as well. And so there's a lot of great innovators in Canada in oil and gas technology. Too. Yeah, that's that's interesting you say that. Coming from the drilling world, we use a lot of unique technology up in Canada. And I say it's unique. There's some they, they've adopted it down here too. But going from working up there, just regularly working with different types of mineral oils, different types of synthetics, different types of water-based inhibitive systems. Coming down here, it was interesting because it's very it, the drilling is somewhat different, but a lot of the sort of advancements that had been made in Canada were down here. And now even companies are trying to adopt some of the stuff that I noticed back in, you know, 2008, 2009 that we were doing up in Canada. So it's interesting to, to hear that. And there's such a smaller group, but it's, they're always trying to push the envelope. And, and it seems like they're always just interested in, in you know, adopting and, and at least trialing new technology. And it's unfortunate right now, I'm sure, you know, the, the state of the industry up there, it's not too hot. And I, a guy called me yesterday and um, he'd been in the business forever and now he's looking for jobs. And I have more people now calling me. He's like, Hey, can, you know, is there any way we can get into the U S and 
I'm sure the the agencies that look over visas, like their must stacks must be high because I've had all my buddies and family and friends and a lot of them say, Hey, you know, is there any opportunity in the oil field down there? We know the Permian is just booming and so it's unfortunate, but nonetheless it's it's a good it's a good industry to be in up there. It's hopefully it turns around. Before we talk about your journey heading back into the US, I want to take a quick break. For everyone out there, if you want to support the show, please leave a review and subscribe to the show. If you want to take a few minutes and actually write something that I would certainly appreciate, anything good or bad, any feedback is good. It always helps me plan my business. I wanted to read one review from this week. This one's from the Daily Dragon. That's quite the name. I like that. The subject's lighthearted and smart. So he says, or she says, you got to be aware going in, there's going to be a lot of shenanigans. We're talking 10 minute intros and long conclusions, but if you're down for it, it's a fantastic podcast. This podcast is like the fun and energetic one of the suite of shows OGGN and I recommend them all. Look, I appreciate that. I, I, I tend to take things very, you know, from a comical standpoint, I tend to go off on tangents about things that don't matter, but that's just who I am. So for the listeners out there, if you don't like my ranting and raving about things that don't relate to oil and gas, I apologize. There's a lot of places you can find information on oil and gas. And so I like to have a little bit of fun on here. So I, just, I hope you appreciate that. All right, John. So heading back, so you, you're in you're in Calgary. You head back into the U.S. Who did you come back? Did you come back and work for Conoco, or who did you come back and work with? Yeah, yeah. I, I was still with Conoco, so I, I completed my rotation assignment in Canada, and then I moved to a great place called Midland, Texas. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the people that live there refer to it as God's country. I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I was actually working at the time Conoco's Rockies BU was out of Midland. Okay. Uh, and then they consolidated and moved that office to Houston. But I was there in Midland at the time. And then I completed the training rotation. And, 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 and ultimately, I found an opportunity where I could, you know, kind of explore or help develop a new field. And so I took Which a one role, was that? I took a role at Anadarko Petroleum. Okay. And so I was there for for about two years. I helped complete the first fifty wells in the Eagle Bind field in Burleson Brazos County. Wow. And so you know that field got sold to Wild Horse, and then the big news last quarter or fourth quarter of last year was you know Chesapeake bought Wild Horse. Yeah. So so that was the acreage that I I completed the first fifty wells in. Wow, good for you. That is awesome. And you know it was really exciting because it was kind of a clean slate. We had one or two. Ex- exploratory wells drilled and the company actually had an exploration budget and then we're wanting to put it into full field development. So I was kind of part of that process transitioning from exploration to full field development. And, you know, one thing that we did was we actually came up with a statistical design of experiment to test different completion designs okay, and determine the optimum one. You know, in a new field, you don't always have the luxury of, of data. And sometimes, you, you know, you have to look at other operators, what they've done. And sometimes if that you know, if there's no other neighboring operators, you kind of have to formulate your own strategy. And so that's what we did. We actually brought in the statistician. We came up with the four key completion drivers and four key geologic drivers. And the statistician said, you know, if we can complete 16 wells with these four variables in each category, then we can determine from production variants what some of those key completion and geologic drivers are. Wow. So how does that differentiate from what you are typically used to, to completing those types of wells. I mean, again, you'll have to excuse my ignorance. I'm a drilling guy. So a lot of this stuff is, is I'm trying to learn as well. But was there a big difference from what you've seen on the completion side, say up in Canada or previously to what you were doing in the Eagle Bind or? Yeah, you know, in Canada and in the Bakken, there was a huge 
you know, emphasis on sliding sleeve completions. Okay. And and part of that was is a time savings and, and limited interventions versus plug and perf. And kind of around around 2014, when I took the job at Anadarko, is around the same time the industry started moving towards more plug and perf completions. And and this is due to a lot of the micro seismic data and just well production data that indicates there's a huge benefit to having cement behind pipe and, and perforated intervals versus single entry with a sleeve and uncemented casing. Okay. Can you briefly on a high level describe the differences between the sliding sleeve and the plug and perf? Yeah. So sliding sleeve originated due basically in, in Canada okay. and utilizes dropping a ball that will fit a certain sleeve seat and will once it pressures up it'll actually shift the sleeve open and then the, then there's an opening or, or multiple orifices that will connect the the well to the reservoir okay. and so these balls are sized variations they initially were an, an eighth of an inch variance so there's only like 16 stages you can put in the ground okay and then they actually went to an and I believe it was a 16th inch, and that doubled the number of stages you can put in the ground. Remember, at this time, we, the norm was 10 to 20 stages per well, and so operators were wanting to frack 30, 40 stages per well, and, and changing that small variation in ball size is what allowed that to happen because ultimately that ball is required. Well, so you'll drop the, the smallest ball first, right. and the, the, the sleeve at the furthest toe part of the well will engage. That way it can drift through the larger holes up hole, and then you'll continually drop larger size balls until you reach the final sleeve. Gotcha. Okay. And and versus plug and perf. So plug and perf completion style is where you actually run in with wireline. You set a plug and perforate an interval, pull out of the hole, and then frack that stage. And so it does require a wireline intervention. But, you know, the benefit of plug and perf is, like I mentioned, the, the cement and also the multiple entry points for the frack to travel through into the rock. Okay, so that obviously offers a pretty big advantage there. So after your your episode or your your stint in Midland, you came back to Houston. Is that right? Yeah, came back to Houston, and then I and then I took the role at Anadarko here, or actually in the Woodlands. Okay, and so you know that was really cool to to kind of have a clean slate and develop a new field. And then unfortunately, Anadarko had a layoff, and they basically sold that asset to Wild Horse, along with many others. So I, I was laid off in 2016. And I think the company laid off about a thousand people or almost a third of the company. You know, the whole industry was, was downsizing, you know, you know, actually 2015, we were tasked with reducing well costs by 30% or more. And one way we did that was by looking into, well, let me back up, understanding the cost components of well construction. The completion has become three quarters of the well construction capital expenditure. Right. And so of that, frac sand is really one of the highest material input costs. Okay. And so the first, you know, lever we pulled to help reduce our well costs was looking into locally available sand. Ah. And so we actually performed a trial in 2014-15 with one well brown sand and one well white sand on the same pad. Interesting. Same completion design, the well production came in very similarly. And at the time, there weren't very many local sand mines open or available. And refresh my memory, where was this that you were completing the wells? This Which is area? Eagle Barn. Oh, this Eagle is still Eagle Barn. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so, you know, soon after that, that asset was sold to Wild Horse, but Wild Horse opened up 
in 2018, a vertically integrated local frac sand mine in Burleson County ah. as a result of that test. Interesting. You know, it's touching on the sand topic. I actually interviewed a buddy of mine, Tom Heitzman from High Crush, not too long ago, and he was talking to me about sand. And primarily, we were focused more on the Permian. And I had asked him, I said, would it make sense for companies if they're fully invested in, in developing a field to just you know buy either a mine or do it all themselves and and you have to look at the the economics behind it and you know and how committed you are there's a lot of business decisions in there but he was telling me that a lot of operators when it came time to the downturn similar to a lot of other commodities in the industry they started direct sourcing you know sand instead of going through you know the the pumpers or whatnot but it was it was a very interesting interview and so i'm I'm interested to hear or it was interesting hearing your, your sort of your touch on the sand part of it and i didn't realize there was you know brown sand and white sand so the mine that they purchased and started utilizing there was it what was it like what kind of sand was that i mean texas sand and so and so the reason that northern white sand, also known as premium white sand, is is comes at a premium is is the quality of crush strength of the sand. So white ah. sand comes typically from Illinois, Wisconsin, and and up north where there's mines. And and the difference is that each single grain is a monocrystalline structure. So the northern white sand, one grain is a full crystalline structure compared to Texas sand is polycrystalline in structure. Ah. So for one grain, there's multiple crystal structures that make it slightly weaker. However, as it's been pumped in the ground over time and and evaluating production results, there's minor or negligible impacts on production for a large cost saving. Okay, and that was going to naturally be my next question is which one gives you the best bang for your buck. But it sounds like throughout the data that you guys have, or the industry as a whole has collected, it's very... You're splitting hairs, essentially, which yeah. is kind of surprising. But The whole industry has moved from, we used to talk about pumping all ceramics and yeah. oxide and all, you know resin coat and high-end propens, and, and the industry's continually moved towards cheaper alternatives and also, you know, been able to achieve the same or better production. And so, you know, it goes to show that the propent is important, obviously, for the fracture network, but what people don't always consider is the unpropped portion of the fracture that may contribute to flow. We used to think in conventional wisdom that when you stop pumping a frac, the only, you know, the fracture is going to close. And if there's no prop in there, then that fracture will not produce. Yeah. But I think most estimates and simulations and a lot of really well-known people in industry like John Ely, for example, with Ely and Associates, he'll tell you that, you know, the hydraulically created fracture may actually be a super highway compared to the propped you know fracture and so you know the the way that we understand the you know hydraulic and propped fractures has kind of changed over time but ultimately if you can get a sand that's seven eight nine k crush strength that's typically good depending on what the closure stress is of the reservoir for the eagleford and permian that should work haynesville is a little bit higher you know strength requirements but some operators are choosing only to pump 100 mesh which is the really fine frac sand because you know as local and still preferring to pump 4070 from northern white sources all that you know with all that being said the industry's shifted away from gel fracs and more towards slick water fracs which is also 
change the demand for Fraxin towards a finer grain. Okay. Because the gels, you know, have a better carrying capacity. Without the gel, you're only relying on the pumping rate to carry that sand. And so, you know, smaller sand sizes are required for the modern slick water design. Okay. So what, so I have two questions off the top of my head. One, you mentioned the sort of the fracture size or the the performance of the frack itself is almost better just with the hydraulic power than it is by you know shoving sand in there so how does how would that work because in my mind i'm thinking there's so much pressure down there to close everything up how would like if you essentially if you pump something down it opens up you're creating a void to which then rock has to displace more rock or does it just get crushed because it's permeable to where it like closes but then leaves that part open like how does that work you know uh, i mean I that wish, may be a tough I, question I would, yeah it is a tough question and and that's where you know p- people implement frac models and other reservoir simulations to to kind of estimate what fracture propagation and, and dimensions but ultimately no model is accurate and so and it's difficult to to see there are a lot of technology companies out there i'll throw in a plug for my buddies over at reveal energy services they're doing some great work using pressure gauges to to you know kind of see how fractures grow and so there are you know we haven't learned everything yet in industry i will say that you know what i like to look at is estimated ultimate recovery normalized per lateral foot on the y axis and then compare on the x axis pounds per f- normalized foot of sand barrels per normalized foot of water cluster spacing in feet, stage spacing in feet, or even well spacing in feet. And that gives you a good comparison normalized of the impacts on ultimate recovery and, you know, how, you know, the different frac intensity, you know, measures. And so really that's, that's the best way to kind of evaluate success. And you can also look at NPV, but there is a diminishing return, you know, as you pump more and more sand, but, you know, 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago, we were pumping in orders of 300 pounds per foot maybe 20 barrels per foot, you know, 500 foot stage spacing and maybe 40 or 50 foot cluster spacings. Today, we're pumping designs that are more related to 3,000 pounds per foot, 50, 60, 80 barrels per foot of water and, you know, 200, 150 to 200 foot well, you know, stage spacing and 330 foot well spacing where we used to space out wells in some cases a thousand feet apart. Right. So the industry's really kind of learned over time the best recipe and completions and, and the best way to do that is frack it and, and evaluate results. Right. So it's interesting you're talking about well spacing. Recently in an article I read, I don't know if it was Heart Energy or even maybe it would have been Wall Street Journal. I, I forget which one, but they were talking about how the industry, you know, historically had their well spacing at let's just call it X feet. And then they decided, well let, let's drill more wells closer together. And now they're actually starting to spread them back out. And I don't know which area that was for specifically, but do you see the industry I mean, ultimately, there's going to be a, a limit of how many wells you can drill next to each other without getting on top of each other. But is there a sweet spot with related to, say, each basin or, or what have you noticed there? Definitely, you know, basin specific. And, you know, I always say that in the frack world, you can make good rock better, but you can't make bad rock good. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and, I like that. Yeah. So And so, you know, a lot of people spend money trying to make bad rock good. And 
that's a wasted effort. So, you know, you know, high grading is what you hear oftentimes, especially in a new field development, you want to target the best areas first because you really want to see what is the true potential or at least the max potential of this acreage to, to be able to run economics. Like I mentioned, the you know, the really only way to tell performance is to try, trial and error. Yeah. And so, you know, why not start on the best part of your field? And additionally, you want to put a Cadillac frac on the on the best part of your field to really test that. And so I think in and you know if you if you have an idea of where the best acreage is, a higher frac intensity and closer spacing is typically not a bad, you know, method to try and you can always back off that later. Makes sense. Uh, but, you know, the the Wall Street Journal had an article this past week about the downspacing effect. I think what you're mentioning. Okay, that's probably the one I'm referring to because mm-hmm. it was recent. Yeah. And and so you know, it's the industry has moved closer in well spacing. The, like I said, there is a breakover point, but uh, you know, and, and the Wall Street Journal mentions that yeah, as you move wells closer together, there may be less production per well. But they didn't mention the overall field production and how that you know the field economics. So that's Makes one sense. thing to consider. But but in general, you know, with the industry recognizes that there is interference between wells oftentimes and and how that interacts and how they interfere is something you know is something that reveal energy can tell you more about because they study that in depth but you know there you have to kind of determine for your for your base and what works and a lot of times looking at other operators data is not a bad way to do to do that but for smaller operators they may not be you know drilling multiple wells per pad it may be single wells and so you know they they may and so you have to keep in mind that for single wells, those are considered unbounded reservoirs. Right. And so w- the impacts of multi-well pads where, you know, you're kind of draining the reservoir and competing wells, but, you know, the outside wells are going to be reaching out further. And so how does that impact your plans if you're, you know, going to infill drill later in, in nearby in that pad? So kind of you have to really consider the full-scale, de- full-field development to, to kind of determine your optimum strategy. Okay. No, that makes sense. So speaking of completions, our podcast is sponsored by Tendeka, and they're known for their innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. And speaking of innovation, how cool is this? They're giving away a mini portable projector. It's a goody mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video, or even just checking out the latest viral video. You can do that too. For a chance to win, click the link in the show notes, and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in. I just want to touch on our the events coming up. We're launching a Midland and Dallas-Fort Worth happy hour. That's coming up in April. We'll announce a little bit more details with regards to location and the exact dates in the near future. And our super happy hour here in Houston. If you're interested in one of the best oil field happy hours in Houston, come hang out with me and the rest of the OGGN group every last Tuesday of the month held here at the Cannon. Next one will be March 26th. Come out and enjoy... A bunch of cold beer from our sponsors at Carbox, some food by HEB, and the opportunity to network with other professionals in oil and gas. Visit OGGN.com for more details. We've also got the Houston Professional Petroleum Data Expo. That's April 9th and 10th here in Houston. And we're very pleased to be part of the SPE GCS upcoming golf tournament. That's going to be Monday, April 8th, starting at 11 a.m. Shotgun start at the Kingwood Country Club. That's a beautiful course. Register and get your choice of a podcast host for a day or an expert interview. If you want to know more details about that, visit OGGN.com front slash SPE GCS golf tournament. And don't worry about it. It's in the show notes if you want to take a click. So, John, I do want to ask a few more questions here. So if you could briefly describe so where you were at 
Now you're at uh, Quidditit? Kittitut. Kittitut. Okay, so you briefly described what, what you guys do there, but if you wouldn't mind touching a little bit and, and, and who your ideal audience is or clients are and how you guys add value to the marketplace. Sure. So the managing partner with Kittita, his name is Bill Diggins, and he was the former marketing director of Schlumberger almost two decades ago uh, when he started Kittita. And he has a lot of great experience helping business to business industrial oil field service clients, you know, understand the market and their you know customer needs. And so there there may be service companies that come to us with a profitability issue and ask us, hey, can you help us understand, you know, why? And so we'll first diagnose, you know, what may be causing the issue, if it's an industry issue or more of a company specific, and if it, you know, have, have is more focused on sales or just, you know, customer needs, you know, and, and especially in oil and gas technology, customers, their needs change quickly and the industry changes very quickly. And so continually trying to stay ahead of that. I mentioned the innovation and, in, you know, in completion designs over time. This has all happened within the last handful of years. And it's a, it's a very dynamic industry. And, and so what we help do, we, we, you know, we may be contracted out to help perform market research or conduct customer surveys to, to help, you know, these companies under, better understand their, their market positioning and competitive analysis. And then phase two of our projects typically include change management and strategies on sales and pricing and, and how to better approach the market. We also help provide sales workshops and other things for, for Salesforce teams that are looking to kind of better strengthen their understanding. Okay. So it sounds like you got a pretty diverse market that you're looking to attract and you're willing, it sounds like you can help out in many different facets, which is, which is really cool. What would you say the future of completions and reservoir optimization optimization is? Do you, do you see, is there a goal in sight as an industry where we're, where, where we're trying to be? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's a constant goal. And in order to survive in this market, you have to to be ahead of the eight ball on on those type of things and stay ahead of the game on on you know the latest technologies and and, and methodologies. You know, operators sometimes make decisions you know given limited data and at a certain point in time, but. You know, if you can really step back and and look at the data, you know, we've drilled a lot of wells over the years, and that's really the first place to start in optimization is just evaluate the data by basin. And there's a lot of great software providers out there like IHS, Drilling Info, RS Energy Services, Rystad, Well Data Labs, Well Database. And, And so there's a lot of information out there, and that's really the first place to start. And I think, you know, in order for the industry to to continue to improve, we got to continue to look at the data right. and there's some, you know, th- there's a lot out there, but capturing that and, and data analytics is a whole nother beast that, you know, yeah. I have very little knowledge in, but I'm excited to see how the smart digital oil field, you know, and, and data analytics can help engineers and oil and gas companies make quicker decisions and better decisions. And that's, you know, I think where we need to improve the most. Okay. So there's a lot of companies coming out of California and all over the world, frankly, with regards to big data and and data analytics. Do you think AI is going to have a big role in production optimization in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I think every other industry, it's used in that capacity. I think the oil and gas industry is a little bit behind the times on you know, data analytics, really. Right. And it's it's almost kind of exciting, though, because we think we've reached a pinnacle and we haven't even it's it's like the Pandora's box that we haven't tapped into. And it's, it'll be insane when AI can make 
you know, a trillion calculations in a heartbeat and give engineers, you know, essentially answers they're looking for and being able to make calculated decisions based off this cloud of data that just goes on for who knows how long, you know, so that is exciting. What would you say right now is our biggest limiter as an industry with regards to completions? Is there anything that's kind of holding us up? Oil prices, <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 So, so my take, you know, on the market right now is obviously the Permian pipeline bottleneck is still causing a price differential and for Permian oil that is subpar. And, you know, as these pipes get built out, I've heard they should be finished possibly end of this summer or end of this year. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, I've heard some say, like Spears and Associates says that January 2020, good luck finding a frat crew. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I listen to them and can keep up with what they do. I yeah. like Richard and, and his brother with, with their a lot of the stuff that they put out, but I hear, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think there's a lot of operators still drilling in the Permian this year, but waiting to complete until there's a better price differential. And, and next year, many think that we should see a positive price differential for Permian Oil to cool. WTI. Awesome. Well, look, I, I don't want to get any, any more technical here. Before we sign out, I wanted to ask you, and as someone I ask, something I ask everybody is, do you have any daily routines or, or habits that contribute to your success? You're, you seem like you're, you're, you're young and you're driven and you've accomplished a lot in your career. Is there anything that contributes to that success? Stay motivated. I mean, for, for me, I have a passion in oil and gas. I have a lot of peers that, you know, have gotten out of the industry since the downturn. And, and for me, you know, do what you love, love what you do. And, and, and for me, you know, that's what gets me out of bed every day. Gotcha. No, I like that. Aside from working, I mean, is there anything you like to do outside of oil and gas? Well, we're talking about snowboarding and skateboarding. I do enjoy yeah. that. I like music. I play the drums. Ah, okay. Yeah. Do you have a band? You know, I did. I'm trying to, to, to rally the troops to, to start a new one, actually. Yeah. Hey, yeah. So if oil prices can, you know, if they, for God forbid, just plummet, then that's a backup. Yeah. You can and, snowboard and create a band on a mountain somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> hey, if anyone needs a drummer, let me know. Okay, there you go. Yeah, he's open for opportunities here. This is great. Well, look, if people are wanting to reach out to you or your group, what's the best way to hit you guys up? You know, just shoot me an email. My email's John P. Clark at me.com. That's okay. J O N P as in Paul, C L A R K at Perfect. M E. We'll put your information in the show notes. That way people can scroll down and you get your email or your LinkedIn. Do you guys have a website? Yeah, we do. Okay. Um, we'll put that in the show yeah, notes too. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll Check sure. out the website. What is it? Is it kidatut.com? Okay, and we'll right. spell it out and put that in the show notes. Well, again, if you're looking for more information on the OGGN group, visit our website and certainly appreciate everyone for signing in today and listening. So thanks again for joining us. And always remember, oil and gas onshore, providing energy for the world through innovation one well at a time. Thanks, John. Thanks, Justin. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 